Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute of Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our friends here at MSU's radio studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute. And joining me as always are our co-hosts, Institute Director Dr. Matt Grossman and economist Dr. Charlie Ballard. And today our guest will be Dr. Keith Hampton of Michigan State University's Department of Media and Information and Associate Director at MSU's Quello Center, which focuses on research that stimulates and informs public debate on communication, information, and media policy. Most recently, Dr. Hampton and his team did a follow-up to a study designed to assess the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on home internet co connectivity, student achievement, and adolescent well-being. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, Matt and Charlie, of course, we'd be remiss if we did not start with the big news of the day here in Michigan and really across the country, and that's the strike by the uh, United Auto Workers against the big three auto manufacturers. Um, it's been noted that it's the first time ever they've actually struck against all three, although it's kind of a limited strike right now. So let's get into the uh, economic and political impact of that. And Charlie, we'll turn to you for the uh, economic impact. What are your thoughts here in Michigan and nationally? Well, um, first of all, uh, as uh, one of the big stories in Michigan in the last really two-thirds of a century is the relative shrinkage of the auto industry. In the 60s, autos were fully one-fourth of the dollar value of our economy. In recent years, it's about been about 6%. So the auto sector and, and employment has, has gone down more than proportionally to that. So it's not as big a deal for Michigan as it once would have been. Nevertheless, autos are still big in Michigan and, and nationally. Um, uh, my my view is always, uh, if there's a strike, I, I want it to get done as soon as possible. Uh, interesting, as you said, that um, they're striking against all three companies, but they're not striking every facility. It's There's a GM plant in Missouri, a Ford truck plant in Wayne, Michigan, and a Stellantis Jeep plant in Toledo. Um, uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, I thought it was going to be different from that. I thought they were going to do an all-out strike. Uh, what does that mean that they're they're partial strike and then possibly going to ratchet up the pressure over time? Interestingly, that these three facilities are not producing the biggest selling items. In other words, this does not inflict maximum pain upon the producers. I don't know whether that's some sort of an olive branch or whether that's some sort of indication that the negotiations are closer in fact, than they sound at the press conferences, because at the press conferences, you'd think that they're going to tear each other's throats out uh, and that they're very far apart. But it, it's interesting, and it will be, you know, I think it remains to be seen how this will play out. Um, best case scenario for Michigan, a relatively short strike with a an agreement that is generous enough to the workers that it puts more money in their paycheck, which they then can spend at the grocery store and the hardware store, but not so generous that it cripples the companies uh, going forward. That, that's a lot to ask for. Well, I do think it is interesting. Um, I believe the, it seemed to me that the leadership at the UAW has thought long and hard about how they're going to do this. Um, and no, it is not system-wide, but it is at each of the plants are in a different state, yes. which I think sends a message that, uh, you know, we not only produce jobs 
and uh, economic impact here in Michigan, but all across the country. And I can see that being the spread moving forward, that they continue to strike at plants in different parts of the country to show that we make we manufacture everywhere, not just in the Midwest. You know, the, I, I will say this. The autos have come a little bit closer this week. Um, you know, so we'll uh, we'll have to see. Hopefully it is, a, it is of, of short duration. But I think... I think the UAW leadership was uh, well prepared uh, for this and had a plan. Matt, politically, uh, Democrats in control in Michigan, Democrats in control in the White House. Um, how does this impact uh, the politics in, in, in both of those arenas? Well, at the moment, not very much, but there's uh, potential for, for greater impact. Uh, labor is, of course, the core part of the Democratic coalition for a long time when it comes to, to interest groups and, and money. Uh, but uh, it uh, has become less important to the electoral coalition as Democrats have uh, lost support uh, among white voters without uh, college degrees. Uh, that's happening nationwide, but also uh, in Michigan. And labor has lost its ability to compensate for that uh, for uh, Democrats. In terms of the position of labor, they're feeling strong uh, because uh, public opinion polls show more support for organized labor uh, than they have in the past. Uh, but they're still in a long-term slide downwards. So we're still talking about a smaller and smaller part of the economy that is covered uh, by organized labor. But, you know, that small part uh, feels emboldened to ask for more. Yeah, well, again, I, uh, I've been taking note of the rhetoric and the narrative um, and the uh, President Fine of, of the UAW has started to speak not just in terms of fighting for auto workers, but fighting for the working class. And I think that they're, they're recognizing, as you just noted, um, the support, the greater support for organized labor that has emerged over the last several years across the country. We've seen it at Starbucks. We've seen it at other, other service industries. So they're, they're trying to stake out a claim, not just that they're fighting for their own uh, economic survival, but they're fighting to set a standard across the board. And when we look back at history, um, it certainly has been the union movement in this country that has set the standard for the middle class. Uh, and so, again, I feel like they, they, they're positioning themselves to do that again. And it's going to be very interesting about how all this plays out. I saw an interview with uh, Jim Farley, the CEO, on the uh, national news last night where he was saying, you know, oh, what they're asking for is $300,000 a year with, you know, less than 40 hours of work week and, you know, I'd like to ask uh, the CEO, uh, how much did you make over the course of the year in terms of the number of hours you worked? How much was your uh, profits over the last 10 years? Americans, I think, are taking notes. So how this works out is going to be interesting. And, of course, this is all in the midst of uh, other economic news that was uh, released this week. Um, our institute did a forum uh, talking about population stagnation here in Michigan and the efforts uh, being made right now uh, through Governor Whitmer's administration to address that, some of the challenges that we face in that in terms of uh, our uh, systems in healthcare and education and infrastructure. And then, Charlie, we had a report come out uh, the other day about poverty across the nation, and particularly uh, talking about here in Michigan, I was just absolutely stunned when I saw, I'm pretty sure I saw the number, that 70% of the kids in Flint live in poverty. 
What are we to make of the poverty numbers here in Michigan and across the country and how it relates to what maybe uh, the UAW is fighting for? Well, uh, Flint is uh, the poster child for the decline of the auto industry. Uh, General Motors' employment in Flint is about 10% now of what it was at the peak uh, a few decades ago. And that has left Flint, as like several other uh, cities in Michigan, as a hollowed-out shell of, of what it once was with a lot of need and not the kind of resources that are necessary to meet those needs. And that's one of the systems that led to the Flint water crisis. Um, we, it's, it's interesting that we uh, really have struggled to face child poverty. You go back and you look at the official ch- poverty statistics. You go back to the uh, 60s, the group that was most likely to be in poverty was elderly Americans. But then... largely because of the expansion of Social Security and for other reasons. Now, the elderly are the lowest uh, poverty rate. It's children with the highest poverty rate. Um, uh, Single-parent families certainly contributed to this, and and, uh, we in the United States, unfortunately, in my view, lead the world in in, uh, single-parent families. Um, And and, uh, I think it's a long-term a long-term challenge that so far we in the United States have not been, uh, we, ha- we haven't addressed it at all well, in my view. You know, it's fascinating to me, and, and Matt, I'd like to talk to you, uh, talk a little bit about this in terms of the politics of all this. Um, you know, there was such an influx of federal money during the pandemic and afterwards uh, in the hopes that we'd be able to address some of these systemic issues, whether it was in our healthcare system or infrastructure or maybe in, in, in poverty, um, that money's being used and about to run dry. Um, so on the one hand, there's all this money floating out there. On the other hand, we continue to have these reports. Where is this going to leave public sentiment and, and the politics of all this, do you think? Well, we are learning again that temporary money is temporary. Uh, The uh, federal government put a lot of money even into reducing child poverty with the child tax credit, uh, but it was scheduled to be temporary and it expired. Some people thought it it did reduce child poverty during that period uh, substantially. And uh, there was some thought that that was going to uh, stimulate some kind of permanent change, but that's that's not the way things usually work. Uh, We usually do have... Uh, economic and budgetary cycles uh, that that go like this. There is some temporary uh, movement towards something, but it, it doesn't last. That's different than we're going to start with a small program that's permanent, and then we're going to hope to build on that over time. That strategy typically works, but we're going to do it all at once for a limited time period. That's what you end up doing. That's what we got, a limited time period. And, and so... Uh, there, there are more than one poverty measure, and, and the, the, quote, official end of quotation poverty measure doesn't include things like those enhanced tax credits, and it didn't reflect those changes. But the, the other measure showed a dramatic decrease in child poverty and then a big increase once those programs were, uh, were terminated. Well, let's talk about another cycle uh, marker we're about to hit, and that's another government shutdown or a possibility of a government shutdown at the end of September. Um, Speaker uh, McCarthy uh, has followed through on one of his commitments to the uh, conservative lawmakers in his party to move ahead with an impeachment process against President Biden. 
Um, next up on that list is no doubt uh, the end of the month uh, shutdown possibility. Uh, what what pressures do we see on the speaker to continue to move toward more of the policies that his uh, conservative members uh, would, would like to be? Are, are, should, should we fear a government shutdown in light of the UAW strike, in light of these poverty figures? Seems like uh, uh, we're not in the best of cycles right now. Matt, what, what, what's your thoughts on the politics of a shutdown at this point? Well, we, we all went through this uh, in June, right. uh, and we Brown thought we reached an agreement between the parties uh, on government funding levels, uh, and now we're back at it. Uh, there's a lot of theater so far. Um, there's really not much support for a government shutdown in the even in the Republican caucus uh, overall. There's not uh, a clear ask uh, that is at all attainable to go along with a continuation for the Republicans. So right now what we have is the same group of uh, folks that have uh, been annoyed with uh, the deal all along that remain annoyed and are using all of their leverage uh, and media appearances uh, to, to go about that. That doesn't mean we won't get a shutdown. It still could be the case because uh, they're having trouble even getting uh, their caucus behind just here's what we would like in the best of all worlds kind of bill, uh, much less actually get them to go along with the Democrats uh, to pass uh, the government funding levels at the level that they basically agreed to. Uh, one oddity is that they, uh, when the, in the deal that they made, they did have a stopgap that would be a 1% uh, cut across the board, but it doesn't kick in until January, until the next time that this might be uh, up for debate, a continuing resolution. So uh, that enabled uh, folks to demand uh, cuts now, uh, and so far they're not getting them, um, but that doesn't mean that, that, that we won't shut down. If, if the past is any uh, indication of what will happen, uh, a, a shutdown could be a great thing for Democrats because uh, shutdowns driven by the uh, far-right edge of the House Republicans, history suggests that that's not popular with the general public. And uh, that may actually be that may be one of the reasons why Speaker McCarthy is in such a tight bind. Uh, because he, he knows that if it goes to that, it's unlikely that he's going to be able to win the public opinion spin debate. Well, Democrats are already crowing about the impeachment process and thinking that that's going to be a disaster for the Republicans in Congress as well. Let's talk about Michigan politics for a second. Interesting discussion coming to the forefront as the legislature returns here, as returned in September, and that is the possibility of ending this legislative session early uh, after the first week of November uh, to allow for various uh, policy measures, including uh, an early presidential primary here in Michigan to take effect immediately this year rather than have to wait uh, into next year. Uh, any thoughts on the politics of, of that, Matt? Um, you know, are, are Democrats really willing to end this session early uh, and not come back maybe until January and, and leave business on, on the table. 
Well, on the one hand, this seems like a pretty odd reason to end the legislature early. We're going to uh, do it so that we can have an exciting Democratic primary between RFK Jr. and President (laughs) Biden uh, and Marianne Williamson. This is just going to be an incredible event here. Um, (laughs) But on the other hand, uh, the the risks may not be as high as as most people think because uh, they may, uh, because of these two mayor elections, not really have a working majority. Uh, they may be able to come back and agree with the governor about what they would do in a special session. So it could be that uh, the the risks are not uh, high, even if the benefits aren't that high either. And that's the interesting curveball in all this is that one of the reasons, the secondary reason to do it is because there are two state House members, two Democratic state House members that are running for mayor. Uh, one of them is said to have a pretty good chance. The other one certainly is in is in the running. Uh, and if they both win, um, there seems to be conflicting reports. I, I hear that they both take office immediately or it's one in one. But nonetheless, there's a real danger of going into January that Democrats will lose their majority in the House. And we will once again Harken back to the days of 1990, the 1990s when we had a uh, 93, 93, a, a tied, tied legislature. So uh, lots at play. Well, uh, you know, I want we want to get to Keith, but I, in the midst of what I would say, many of our listeners would say that we we in this first part of the broadcast have have uh, have covered a lot of kind of grim news. I got I got a good one. Uh, along with the poverty numbers and other numbers that came out from the census this week. Um, women's earnings, the, the gender earnings ratio, the ratio of the earnings of the average woman to the average man, um, that ratio increased. It's the 10th year in a row that it's reached an all-time high. And women are not yet at parity with right. men, but uh, we're at 84%. Um, and that compares with 59% in most of the 60s and a low of less than 57% in 1973. So women have made substantial progress in the American labor market, and that's a piece of good news. I wonder if that's uh, why the Lions are now 1-0 entering the second week of the season, having beating the, uh, beaten the Super Bowl the, champions. The defending champions. Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, I mean, if you wait long enough, good things will <laughs> good happen, things and will maybe happen. this is the Lions' year. Well, let's get to uh, Dr. Keith Hampton. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, he's with Michigan State University's Department of Media and Information, uh, also Associate Director at MSU's Coelho Center, and uh, most recently did a follow-up to a study uh, designed to assess the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on home internet connectivity, student achievement, and adolescent well-being on middle and high school students enrolled in rural and small-town schools. Uh, Dr. Hampton, uh, what what are your findings show? Well, thanks for having us. So as you you mentioned, this is our second attempt at surveying students in rural Michigan. So we went back to 13 rural Michigan school districts that we first interviewed in the year before the pandemic and then came back to get a snapshot of how things have changed in terms of digital inequality and overall well-being. And so kind of a, a good positive highlight is that over the pandemic, we went from students who uh, where about 20% on average, about 20% of rural students uh, did not have any kind of internet access at home, uh, to cutting that to about 4% uh, during the pandemic. That's kind of tempered with the evidence that uh, most of that uh, was due to school districts successfully uh, leveraging state and federal resources to give hotspots uh, to students uh, so that they could work from home over the pandemic. 
But as resources for those hotspots has declined, uh, we're seeing already uh, a return to uh, lower levels of home internet access amongst rural students. And then in terms of device access, the story is a little bit more positive in that it has steadily increased. About 25% of rural students before the pandemic did not have access to a computer at home. Uh, and that now is down to, to less than 10%, which is a fairly big increase. And even with reduced resources to hand out Chromebooks and laptops, that has steadily improved over time. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we see some sharp changes in terms of uh, educational aspirations. Uh, prior to the pandemic, about 60% of rural students anticipated that they would go on to at least some sort of post-secondary or college education, and that's now dropped to about 50%, so a fairly hefty drop. Uh, along with that, uh, a big drop in interest in STEM-related careers. Uh, about 50% of students prior to the pandemic were interested in uh, engineering, computer science, health professions, uh, that's dropped now to about 35%. And within that, even a little bit more concerning news, maybe about 50% of students now who are anticipating going on to a STEM career think they're going to be able to do that without any kind of college uh, education. Well, that's a little disappointing because uh, that's not the, that's not usually the case, is it? Uh, uh, we find whether it's uh, going on to an institution of higher education or other skills training uh, through a program at a community college or or other certificate training program that um, we still uh, people still need to continue to understand that. Uh, Skills training updating is is a constant throughout throughout life, and we still have a an issue. Of course, in the state, it was noted the other day that we still have about only a quarter of parents and caregivers uh, who really think that that's important. So that continues to be a, a sticking point here in in Michigan. Can you uh, tell our audience? You said thirteen rural school districts. Can you tell give us an idea of where in the state? Southwest, northeast, northwest. Was it all over the rural rural parts of the state? Yeah, this was a partnership that we established with the uh, Eastern Upper Peninsula and uh, St. Clair County School Districts. Okay. And uh, you said that this was a study, the follow-up to a study that had been done uh, pre-pandemic. Is, is, that, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, prior to the pandemic, we went into schools to find out uh, the implications for digital inequality in terms of how it was affecting student outcomes. And we found things like not only were students disconnected, but those students who were disconnected, those students who had lower digital skills, uh, they were doing much worse in the classroom. Uh, they weren't getting homework completed. Uh, and surprisingly, students with lower digital skills are doing much worse on standardized testing like the SAT. Uh, that, that's not, not surprising to hear. And, of course, it's interesting to note that while they still have the hardware available to them in the Chromebooks and the like, uh, it's the uh, Internet connectivity that now is, is, is definitely a problem now that funding for those hotspots, as, as you noted, has, has diminished. Um, I know that uh, Coelho uh, has been working with the Merit Network as well across the state, uh, along with the state of Michigan, in, in uh, accessing and, and garnering in federal dollars to improve our connectivity in those areas. But those are going to take a long time to, to actually put into effect, are they not? Yeah, I mean, what we have here is kind of a, a policy gap problem that there is certainly a good amount of state and federal dollars being directed towards improving the infrastructure for broadband, Internet access at home. But the window uh, in between those, those fibers going into the ground and you know, today is probably four or six years. 
And so we're very reliant on kind of a stopgap measure that could be implemented in the interim to make sure those students become connected again. And interestingly, the hotspots have been a surprisingly good intervention. So not only are students being able to use those, but from year to year, students who were given a hotspot, by the next year, about half of those households adopt some other type of home internet connectivity. And so what we're really seeing here is a kind of cycle of insecurity. And so students whose households lose internet access at some point through the year or from one year to the next often uh, in households where children are moving from one household to another at various times in the year, uh, those students are experiencing the most kind of disconnection. So it might be, this might be a, a, great, uh, a, a great presentation to policymakers themselves for them to understand that we still need these stopgap measures and that the stopgap measures of funding hotspots for K-12 education in particular uh, was an effective method of getting students connected and maybe getting them to understand the importance of that connectivity at home so that they work toward that once, once those measures weren't available and possibly we can possibly uh, show them that uh, some more stopgap funding until the systems come into place uh, could be uh, helpful uh, to students uh, ac across the state. Um, Charlie, Matt, any thoughts on, on this particular issue? Uh, it's it's disheartening uh, to hear of uh, so many. Uh, yes, some of the numbers are, are improving, but yet we have uh, such a substantial portion of our, our rural population who are disconnected. And it, it, it makes me um, wish that I had a magic wand that would figure out how to how to get people. And also, it's not just the lack of connection. It's the it's the attitudes, uh, um, you know, uh, I wish, wouldn't it be great that you get out of high school and you can earn uh, middle and upper cl middle class wages? That was once true in Michigan 50, 60 years ago. It isn't true anymore. And so what can we do to, to try to convince these folks um, that if they want to have a prosperous future, they need A, to be con connected, B, to get training and skill? Well, you know, one of the things uh, I think that that starts, and I've said this for years now, is that we need policymakers to understand, some of them I think do, but we, they don't, they're not in the majority, that internet connectivity is a public utility. Much like water and electricity were found to be public utilities back in the last century. Um, they, were, they were necessary in the phone. Uh, they, they were necessary for economic prosperity, and in the 21st century, Internet connectivity is necessary for economic prosperity in every field of life, whether it's agriculture, manufacturing, urban, or rural. And uh, right now, uh, you know, let's, let's be honest with each other. You know, the uh, telecommunications companies still have a strong toehold and foothold on what they consider to be a private sector enterprise. Um, in Michigan, we have some communities that have their own systems. And across the country, many communities are now looking at uh, initiatives, especially in rural areas, to get uh, cooperatives uh, in place so that people can be more greatly connected. But until we can get across the finish line that Internet connectivity is a public utility that should be a regulated monopoly, much like our other public utilities are, uh, I, I really don't think, I, th I think we're going to, this is going to continue to be a problem. 
thoughts, Keith, about what we do? Well, the issue of Internet insecurity and access is particularly problematic. Uh, those students are in households where uh, access is appearing one month, disappearing the next, uh, don't get the same experience with using the technology. And those households uh, are more likely to, over time, be hesitant to, to adopt the Internet in general, even if it becomes affordable, simply because they see less value in it due to the struggles that they've experienced in access. You know, uh, gentlemen, we've certainly talked about a lot of challenges before our uh, state today. And it's not just Michigan. You know, as, as I have the ability to uh, go around the country and speak to colleagues in various other states, uh, everyone's working on these same, same issues, whether it's uh, talent attraction, whether it's Internet connectivity, uh, whether it's improving infrastructure or health care or, or, or education. Um, challenges, challenges abound, and challenges have always abound. It's always a question of... Do we have the willingness and the capacity um, as a society and as policymakers to continue to address these issues in the uh, forward manner that many of us uh, believe they need to be addressed? But right now, we've got a strike in major manufacturing. Uh, we have uh, a possibility of a federal government shutdown at uh, the end of the month. So there are some pretty pressing matters before us uh, by the time we meet next. What, what do you think, Charlie? When we get back together in a month, will, uh, will we have moved past these uh, couple of uh, initial hurdles? Well, uh, so this is our September podcast. So our next one is in October. And since the federal government fiscal year ends in uh, at the 30th of September, I think we should um, uh, schedule our October podcast for pretty late in the month <laughs> because I think that will make it more likely that the federal government budget will be somehow at least cobbled together. And uh, I really hope that the GM strike, uh, well, the, not the GM, the, the auto strike for all three um, um, manufacturers is settled by late October. Matt? At the at the and possibly earlier, earlier but, yeah. but I, I hope by then. Matt, leave us on an optimistic note. <laughs> well, one place that there has been a lot of policy movement uh, lately is in election reform. Uh, and we have recently been called uh, a blueprint uh, for election reform nationally. Uh, we've had three initiatives, a lot of legislative action. We have an independent redistricting commission. We have same-day voter registration. We have uh, now uh, no reason absentee uh, voting. We will now have required in-person uh, early voting. So there has been a lot of reform uh, to the electoral system. There are a few risks, though. Number one, we're still in court with the redistricting commission, and there's still concerns about uh, African-American representation, especially in the Detroit area. Uh, number two, we have implementation difficulties. We had uh, long lines. We had confusion last time, and we're implementing more uh, for the next election. And so uh, we're putting a lot on the on the shoulders uh, of these clerks. And then, of course, we have partisanship. Things could swing back the other way, uh, and some of these reforms uh, are getting quite the partisan complexion because uh, uh, folks see the redistricting commission being followed with Democratic uh, majorities in the state legislature, and there's the view that these voting reforms are going to be good uh, for Democrats. Now, inter interestingly, 
increased voter turnout is actually not associated with Democrats winning elections. Uh, but unfortunately, both political parties believe that it is. And so it's become more of a partisan issue. So we're a national model, but a national model that's likely to spread to Democratic states. Yeah, perception is everything, is it not? Well, Charlie and Matt, always a pleasure to have this time with you. Uh, Dr. Hampton, thank you for sharing the results of uh, your, your recent work, uh, very prevalent uh, to what's going on in the state. My thanks again to Russ White and the staff here at MSU Radio Studios for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.